Hi everyone, welcome back to the FinTech, uh, FinTech Figure Show. Today we are in Bangkok for the Money 2020 World Tour. I'm with Scarlett. Scarlett is the Chief Strategy Officer of Money 2020, and she will help me to co-host this exclusive interview with Kentop. Uh, uh, hi Scarlett, how are you today? Doing well, Medhi. After last night settling in, you know, still have a bit of jet lag. The 28-hour flight was a lot. Um, you can't fly direct from Bangkok from New York, for those of you that don't know. So it was quite a lot to get here, but so delighted. Can't wait to talk more to Kuntop, and we're going to have a great, great conversation today. And I'm very excited to see you face-to-face -face finally, because we have been on uh, many calls since uh, October or September. But the first yes. time we can uh, do this together. Do it together in person, which I think is so exciting. And especially because as we're up here in this hotel room, a few stories up, downstairs we're having hundreds of people arrive from all over all over bangkok broader from thailand and so looking forward to the great conversations we have this afternoon as well yeah, i'm looking for this kind of you are the founder and ceo of bitcup the largest crypto exchange company or crypto blockchain company here in, uh, in thailand how are you doing today great thank you and i'm really honored i did not know you guys flew 28 hours <laughs> For this um, interview and this event, and I'm really glad you're hosting such a huge, you know, exhibition in in Thailand. I know Scott, you are excited to speak with him because he's the first company uh, regulated by the Thai SEC, and also you are the number one here in uh, in Thailand, right? Yep. So I have personally been in the blockchain digital asset space for nine years now. Uh, but what's it, what is interesting about Thailand is that we are one of the very first country in the world to have a proper license. To uh, we are one of the very first company to be fully regulated, and we have been running the company this way for five years now, which is you know one of the longest um, you know, regulated exchanges in in the world. Before we ask you to introduce yourself, maybe Sky, do you want to add something before we start this interview? Well, I think it's great that you talked a bit about the SEC, and they're going to be with us this evening as well. We have a lot of other of the the regulatory bodies and government within uh, Thailand joining us. And so it's just really exciting for me. And when we talk to Ian all the time, our content director for Asia is the one who introduced us in the first place to hear about how in this country, there is so much collaboration across companies, across government. So we're looking forward to hearing that story from you in a bit more detail. Maybe we, we deep dive into your company. We can have a, a good uh, overview of who you are, where are you from, what you have done before becoming like the CEO of your company. Sure. Um, my my name is Top. I'm I'm fully Thai, and uh, but I was educated abroad. I went to uh, New Zealand for my high school. Went to the UK for my undergraduate and and master's degree, and then after that, I did my first ever career in Shanghai, China. I was there for two and a half months as an investment banker. But uh, a, a unique one. Um, uh, have you guys watched the Wolf of Wall Street? Of course. The the pink sheet, the penny stock market. So uh, the least regulation, regu the least regulated market. Right? So usually the stocks are very volatile. That job did not last very long. I was there for two and a half months. And then I tried um, uh, consulting uh, for a few weeks in SF, San Francisco. And then I flew back home to start the very first Bitcoin wallet company nine years ago now, when nobody understood what Bitcoin was. Um, and I've been in that in the industry since. And Bitcub is actually my second company. The first company was called Coins.co.th, and it was sold to Gojek. Gojek is a ride-sharing app equivalent to Uber in in the West. Mm -hmm. um, they acquired the the group. Um, 
four four five years ago in what in in one of the largest uh, M&A deals and then uh, I founded Bitcup now we are the the leader in the digital assets and, and blockchain space once you got a taste of the the Bitcoin blockchain world you had to keep going you sold a company that wasn't enough you had to go for another one we we I mean we still have the strongest conviction that uh, blockchain and digital currency is going to be the most important, one of the most important technology in the financial sector. Right? And we're almost at the inflection point, I think, with many recent trends. We see like, you know, the recent bank run. And especially I, I studied economics. I did economics training at universities. And one of my most favorite subject was uh, economic history. So I studied the evolution of monetary systems that it evolves every 50 years, right? Back then, we did not use um, paper as money. We used like stones, shells, you know, yellowstone, like like gold, right? Gold standard, right? And the Great Depression hits in 1929. And then we had a new system called Britain Wood System. We formed the IMF, the World Bank in 1945. And then we have the post-Britain Wood System in 1971. That's when the U.S. uh from gold, right? And we have this money creation afterwards, and we have this 2008 crisis and the, the recent bank run. So usually, if if you study the trend, uh, we are we still have the strongest conviction that in the near future, um, money will no longer be paper based. It would have to be digital, especially in with the uh, sustainability issues too, like the net zero right, movements. Right? Um, how can the world? be sustainable if we keep killing trees for paper money right or using plastic as a medium of, of exchange that's not a sustainable way right uh, when other sectors are reducing their carbon footprint already with their green green products or green alternative and everyone is blaming on the fossil fuel uh, industry for destroying the world but if you look at the statistics Fossil fuel accounts for only 26% of all the 50, 52 billion tons of carb greenhouse gas emissions per year. What about the other 72%? It comes from the food we eat, the clothes we wear, the money we use as paper-based. So we still believe that you know blockchain is going to be one of the most important technology in the financial space. And we have a, a long way to go from, from today. When you talk about the evolution of money, I have to introduce you later to uh, the uh, one of the original founders of Money 2020, whose title is now Wizard. I kid you not. But he is, I also call him, that's his official title, but he's also known as a professor. And he goes on and on about everything that you just talked about from the early days and how before money was paper and when it was back to trading gold or whatever else. And he's a, he's a character. I think the two of you will, academics will definitely click. Quick question before we get into the heart of it. Two and a half months stint in San Francisco consulting. What type of you went from a penny stock trader basically, or you were talking about the pink sheets? What were you doing? What type of consulting were you doing in San Francisco? Um, I was in Shanghai first for two and a half months, and that's when I discovered Bitcoin actually yeah. in 2013. Um, because of the you know pink sheets, right? You, you usually look at volatile stocks. And one day at the office, I just saw this Bitcoin thing. The price went from $11 to $1,150, no, 10,000% outperformed all the other volatile pink sheet stock with no ceilings, no floors, right? And uh, that's when I first 
got interested about this. I thought Bitcoin was another pink sheet stock, by the way, because it's such a volatile thing back then. I remember talking to Dad, Darren, my, my friend, my colleague. Do you know this Bitcoin thing? And he just completely ignored it. Um, he did not bother. And I was so lucky that I stumbled across a blog. I, I was researching further, right? And I stumbled across, across a blog written by Mark Anderson. I did not know who, who he was, by the way, back then. But he wrote, he wrote an, a very important article called Why Bitcoin Matters. It was a random blog back then, but now it's a classic you know, New York Times, Wall Street Journal article. And I got to pick his brain. I got, I got to see the vision that, oh, now with the blockchain technology, you, especially the, the unbanked, the underbanked, can get access to financial services, financial inclusion with a phone that is just connected to the internet. Right? And it allows micro payments to happen for the first time in human history. You can transfer five cents, 10 cents overseas in a matter of, uh, in a frictionless, instant global manner. That's when I was convinced uh, for the first time that this technology is going to change the financial landscape. Right? And as, as with many graduates, I was discovering what I like, what I dislike after graduation. So, you know, two and a half months into the first job as an IB, I, I, know, I know early on that, uh, you know, um, professional jobs maybe not be for me. Uh, I would prefer to be an on entrepreneur. But then as I, you know, a traditional route of any economist training ec economic students, you either go for IB or consulting, right? So I decided to give my, myself another chance. Okay, if I don't like IB, let's let me try quickly on consulting. And after I went to SF, and the reason why I chose F uh, SF was because I started to get interested in technology and Silicon Valley is in SF, right? But I cannot get a you know, job at Google or Facebook because of my background. I have to have an extra work permit and a visa. And I did not graduate in a computer science degree or economics degree. So I, the best job I could get was a consulting job in in the, uh, in the market street. Um, and a few weeks, only a few weeks into that second job, I, I had enough research. Like since university times, master's degree, I went to Oxford, by the way, too, too much research already. I cannot do this for the rest of, of my life. I know early on, but I already booked the ticket, right? So I started to ask around um, to meet with executives uh, from the tech, tech zone, right? A Silicon Valley area. One of the friends introduced me to meet with an ex-executive of, of PayPal called Dan Shat. Um, I met him in one of the pancakes shop um, in one of the weekends and and I treated him pancakes, right? And I asked him the first question, what do you think about Bitcoin? And he was like, um, Top, you're a much, much luckier generation compared to mine, he said. The original vision of PayPal was not a mundane payment gateway like today. Mm -hmm. The original vision of PayPal was to create digital dollar. That was their original vision. But nothing was ready in their generation. There were no smartphones. There were no broadband internet, 4G internet, right? Um, there were no like smart computers, laptops. Um, there were no blockchain technology, right? Internet penetration is not as great as today. And in your generation, you have blockchain, you have 4G, you have fiber optic, right? Um, you have um, uh, smartphones. Bitcoin is going to change the financial landscape. That's like the second rubber stamp that I, I got the insights 
from that SF experience, San Francisco. Then a few weeks there, I booked a ticket back home to start the first ever Bitcoin wallet company from my parents' clothing shop in Pertunam Center area in Bangkok, which is a garment business, garment uh, market, physical garment market. I, my parents, they have a small clothing shop. So I, I asked my parents for a spare room on the second floor and turned that into an office space with a one-person laptop. And my aunt, she owns a furniture factory. So she donated a, a table and a chair uh, for me and and bought the first Bitcoin with me, Be- became my first customer nine years ago. And then things got, you know, kick, uh, gro- you know kicked off from, from there up until today. So we've been through quite a lot. That's amazing. I think we should start getting into to BitCub and how you got here. But just even even the fact that, you know, you casually threw in Oxford and that's obviously one of the best schools in the world. And then to go to do that. And then you had those, as you said, those two rubber stamps from people that you really admired and respected. And then going into the fact that you, you know, your aunt was your first client is such an amazing way to, to start this journey. So Matty, you want to get us started? Yeah, sure. Um, one of the questions I would like to ask you about your company is what are you doing? What is the core mission of your company? What kind of services do you deliver to your customers? And after this, maybe Scott, we can speak about the partnerships. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, the mission of the company is to democratize opportunities for everyone via leading innovations. But the vision right, we see that will be happening in the next decade mm-hmm. is that the digital economy is going to be huge. I mean, the the two biggest growth engine of the next decade is the the net zero movements, right? The green products, right? And also the digital uh, digital uh, wealth, digital uh, economy will be the main driven of GDPs. And we believe that money will no longer be paper-based too. It's not compatible. The, the format is not compatible with the digital economy, right? When everything is digitalized. Mm-hmm. And we see that the financial space has been lacking innovations for a long time since the arrival of credit cards, right? 1950, 1945, 1950, the Diners Club. We're still using like World War II technology but we're living in the internet century era now there's a huge gap and the current financial institutions they are only preparing their infrastructure for the physical rail not digital rail they build their businesses on on the assumption that money is paper-based therefore they, they must have branches therefore they must have armor trucks to move money around. Therefore, they must have ATMs, machines. And these are costs, like initial investment costs for the banks. And banks cannot run the company on losses or cannot be a nonprofit organization. Imagine if you deposit money in a bank that loses money every month. Are you, you, you won't be able to keep your money long-term and sleep well at night, right? You won't make another deposit. Right, you won't make another deposit. So banks need to make profit. They're not a non-profit organization. It doesn't work. That means when their cost is too high, they cannot bank every individual's 
because they build their businesses on the old assumption that money is paper based. They must have branches, armor trucks, ATM machines. You know, do you know that 50% of all the people here in this region are unbanked, are underbanked? One in two. I mean, less in Thailand because banks are doing quite second to Singapore right? quite well in providing bank accounts. But in reality, you know, in people in Philippines, Indonesia, there's still a cash-based society and they cannot get lo- get loans because they have no credits history. Like they have to have, have get, get, get loans from loan sharks. They have to even use Western Union, which is a company that is started in World War II again. And they charge like 10%, 15%. You know, every Filipino, they, they have to work uh, at least 13 months per year, uh, not 12 months like everyone else's, because that extra month is the fee to Western Union to send money back home. right? So we cannot achieve this financial inclusion. Currently, 2 billion people are currently un, like outside excluded from, from the economy. And with the sustainability is also the key critical say force destruction right we are not able to live in this planet we have we don't have a planet b we only have planet a with the two trends combined money would be digital and therefore we need a digital infrastructure rail so right? basically you are working with these people to give them access to for example sending the money overseas to the remittance on the new protocol that and the new protocol or the new market thesis that money would be digital. So we're creating a digital rail, mm-hmm. uh, creating a digital infrastructure that is compatible with the digital rail. So the end result that we are trying to deliver for the people is that we are able to provide financial inclusion at a much lower cost because our company do not need to invest in bank branches, armor trucks to move money around or ATM machines. These are costs that uh, would not be able to bank everyone who has a low income threshold per month not profitable to bank them but since our cost is much lower we can bank a wider group of people i think the best analogy or the best example is the communications uh, telecom space right imagine the telcos the traditional telcos they had to invest in old technology infrastructure like landline and cross-border international calls were expensive because there were many intermediaries before you can get your calls across internationally, right? And then Skype came in and they built their technology on on top of the uh, open source protocol called TCP IP, right? Which is an open source. Zoom, they don't have to invest in this heavy infrastructure landline. That means that their cost on average is much, much lower than telcos. Then they can provide their services for free or, or to a wider range of people. They are democratizing information. I literally use and, this example in my book, the Skype example and telcos. Like there's, it's such a good correlation to what's happening in financial services. Exactly. So uh, I think internet democratizes information, right? Um, and we have applications building on top of open source internet protocols, the old internet protocols like Skype, Zoom, right? Microsoft Teams. You know, blockchain is democratizing value. And and we have companies like BitCup, the application layer, building on top of the another open source right, blockchain protocols to democratize the way we not share information, but the way we send values now. Right? That's what we are trying to build the infrastructure for. 
right? And the end result would be that we're able to provide uh, financial inclusion to a wider range of customers, especially in, in the Southeast Asian region. I think you've done a, a brilliant job articulating the why and getting a bit into the how. And, and obviously this idea of this digital economic infrastructure is a core value and core strategy for you. I'd love to understand a little bit more. And the, the idea of financial inclusion is one that's really near and dear to my heart. When I got into financial services, I worked for a big Spanish bank. So I spent a lot of time in Latin America and Obviously, there's differences across geographies, but the idea of unbanked, underbanked, you know, one in three people in the country of Mexico didn't have bank accounts. And so there was a lot that we were looking at there. Can you talk a little bit about, so I, I love how you're thinking about the technology solving that. Can you talk about some of the barriers that you see for this happening, even from a psychological perspective for people? Like, how are you thinking about moving people to get comfortable with this new digital infrastructure when sometimes there is a comfortability in knowing that even if it's under my mattress, I put my cash under there and I know exactly how much I have. You know, how do you how do you think about that part? Um, it's not one size fits all, I would say. For Thailand in particular, we're in the Southeast Asian region. Even companies, no, sorry, even countries within the Southeast Asian region are, are different when you look into details, right? Uh, for Thailand, we have the mobile phone penetration is 144%. On average, we have 1.4 phones per person here, right? Internet penetration is like 80%, right? We're a social media country too. Everyone is on social media. And Thailand, by, by the way, is one of the highest adopter, user of technology. If you look, go to Paragon area, it's the most Instagrammable place in the world. If you go on TikTok, most of the Thai customers are dancing. We're one of the quickest to react, to use the technology. So it's not one size fits all. And the confidence, um, I would say, in the West uh, are changing too. Um, right now, people share um, family photos on Facebook. That is something valuable why would they not send money on social media in the future? We are buying groceries on e-commerce, right? Platforms. That's something we eat that could destroy our body. We trust the e-commerce to deliver food, right? We order food online now. What's the difference from buying insurance from e-commerce platform? Or I think one of the banks is to go down soon again, right? There's a recent bank run in the US, right? SVB, Credit Suisse, uh, there are many more, you know, bank runs are happening. And the previous ideology or beliefs of putting money in a, in a bank and you can sleep well, I'm not so sure that I think things are cha changing. And you can see clearly that there is an increasing trend after the bank run of people moving diversifying some of their wealth into cryptocurrency because they have full control right, of their wealth. And I think we are living in a bubble. Um, you know, we have credit cards, we can get loan out easily, we have banking infrastructures, but the rest of the world is not like what we have. I remember talking to one of the CFOs of the crypto companies. He's from Argentina. 
And he said when he was a kid, I cannot Im imagine living like this, by the way. He said when he was a kid, him and his brother goes to the supermarket with his mom, right? And they have to rush to the counter before they flip the price mm. to reserve, to book, to make sure that they are faster than the counter to change the, the, the grocery prices. Imagine living in a life like, like that, right? It's something beyond what we can believe, right? But that's the real reality. But, you know, all these new technology is able to provide the, provide the hedging mechanism for people in, in Argentina, right? in Venezuela, in now in Zimbabwe, African nations, right? So I think it's not one size fits all, um, but, but logically, uh, countries without um, deep, deep infrastructures, previous banking infrastructures, would have the more probability of leapfrogging with the latest technology. Because if you think in terms of economics, there's less opportunity cost, right? Um, because they did not have any of the, their initial investment in the legacy system. So they can just leapfrog and use the latest technology right away. So my prediction would be that the East would be able to leapfrogging the West in the financial se sector because we have less opportunity cost. Or think think of, I don't know, China or Myanmar when they open up the country. They don't have to have this big, big telephone booth. They can just use mobile phone, leapfrogging and use the latest technology right away. There are so many opportunities, as you just said. In fact, I've been talking a lot to the Money 2020 team here in Asia about why they should be so excited about the opportunities coming to this part of the region. And it is exactly what you said. With the lack of infrastructure comes opportunities where you can, like you said, leapfrog and do so much. I do want to spend, because you, you've had such a successful career, which is amazing, but I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about challenges, both, you know, mainly from a macro perspective. You started the conversation earlier talking about regulations and what was happening there. So we can't really talk about blockchain and digital assets without using that R word again. How, how does BitCub approach regulatory compliance? Tell us a little bit more about your strategy there. Sure. Um, we always call ourselves a fintech company, not a financial company, not a tech company, but a fintech company, meaning that we cannot move fast, break things, apologize later, like other tech companies did or their strategy in the past, because we hold a lot of customers' assets. Right? We cannot move fast, break things, and cut corners and apologize later. But at the same time, we cannot be purely just a financial company and build their whole infrastructure on, like, phys physically. The cost is going to be too high, and we cannot achieve our mission or the vision of onboarding more people. And if the compliance cost or is too, too cum cumbersome or too high, then um, we, we cannot it's not compatible with the internet century world, right? Or the technology we have, or the, the behavior of the customers. So we have to find the right balance between moving fast and breaking things and you know, making sure people can sleep well at night, right? AML, KYC, making sure the old world and the new world are, are happy. That's why we call ourselves a, a FinTech company, find that sweet spot, right? And, Especially within the um, 
I mean, I've been in this, in this space for nine years now, and I've seen the evolution of the R word. In initially, to be honest, when you when you say Bitcoin back then, people thought it was a money laundering, mm -hmm. right? Drug money, toy money, don't go anywhere near it. Even a Ponzi scheme, right? People thought Bitcoin was a Ponzi scheme back then. Imagine how many arguments I had with my parents. They sent me all the way to Oxford, right? And one day there is a letter, a formal letter from the Bank of Thailand in 2014, right? Saying that the value of Bitcoin could go to zero. Don't go anywhere near it. It was a formal letter giving to all the commercial banks. Do not go anywhere near Bitcoin. The value could, to, could go to zero. Could be a Ponzi scheme. Who would my parents believe? A recently graduated son or, or the Bank of Thailand. So out of those progression, we even had to change our branding. We stopped calling ourselves a Bitcoin company because nobody understood what associated Bitcoin with Ponzi schemes and money laundering. We had to call ourselves a blockchain company, even though it's the same, same, thing, same thing, but people would, were, were not able to differentiate. They thought, oh, blockchain is going to change the world, but Bitcoin don't go anywhere near it. Even though, even though Bitcoin is like a subset of the blockchain technology, right? We had to rebrand the company. And then in 2017, I think that's when, uh, on the 1st of April 2017, that's Japan was the first country to announce Bitcoin is legal tender. And in 2018, Thailand was, was one of the very first, I think the first in the world to issue a proper digital asset exchange license. Even cryptocurrency companies in, in the West, they claim to be regulated. O only a handful of them, by the way, in the world mm -hmm. claimed to be regulated. They don't have a proper direct license. They have a payment license. They have a remittance license. They have an e-wallet license, and they claim to be regulated. But we are the first in the world to have a proper digital asset exchange license. Right. In 2018. So Thailand was quite advanced. And BitCup was the first company to receive this license. So we have been uh, uh, regulated from day one. Right. And there are two approaches uh, for running this type of businesses. Right. The first approach is uh, the unregulated players move fast, break things, apologize later. But usually that's not how it works in, in the financial space things would come back and bite them later. And it's, it's not a sustainable manner. And I think the market would self-select. There'll be a natural selection in the, in the long run, right? Uh, especially last year was a good good, you know, good year to, to clean up, clean it. I think Warren Buffett said that when the tide goes down, you see the naked one, right? Um, those who are swimming naked. So I think in the long run, natural selection would kick in, right? Strong, strongest, most regulated, most compliance would survive. So the second approach is to move a bit slower, work closely with the regulators, right? Find the right sweet spot, right? The fintech approach, not a tech approach, nor not a financial approach, but a fintech approach. Find the balance between providing great customer experience, humanizing the technology, as well as complying with AML, KYC, making sure people can sleep well, because there are a lot of people using the platform and there will a lot of money. Uh, a lot of accountability. CG is important, corporate governance, right? We have to have, you know, uh, companies formation, company structure, the way we share information, the way we work. You know, these are completely 
different skill sets to the first approach, moving fast and breaking things, right? Completely two different skill sets. And BitCup has been the using the latter, the the regulated approach since day one. And I think it, around the world, I think less than five companies use this approach right now. I think that's a really interesting point as well. And one thing that we've seen, you know, you talk about the evolution of crypto and, and blockchain in the last 10 years. And really within the last few years, everyone's been really excited about the, the unicorn, the decacorn. And that was like the biggest thing everyone was talking about. As we've seen, you talked about some of the macro stuff that happened last year across the world. Things have been a little bit different. And one of the things that we just did, Mehdi, I think you know this, is we just wrote a white paper. The other professor, again, the professor was <laughs> to me, we were talking a lot about like the move to centaurs and how important you know, recurring revenue is and profitability. And for me, when Ian and I, we were talking a lot about the first few companies we wanted to help represent our brand and help tell the story about fintech in Asia to our audience. And one of the reasons why Ian was so keen on on you and on BitCub was around the fact that despite the crypto winter, it's weird saying winter when it's nearly 100 degrees here in Bangkok. So I'm a little, little, you know, getting used to that concept. But despite the crypto winter that BitCub has remained profitable, can you just talk a little bit? Obviously, the the doing it the right way, doing it slowly has helped. But how, how have you been able to achieve that when so many of the other people in the market have it. And if I may add, uh, what makes the difference between you and the other companies? Because we'll just complement your question, right? But the thing is like your approach is very different, but also maybe in terms of tech or the, the way that you approach the market is also different. So if you can answer the two questions, it would be great. Yeah. So last year is not just a crypto winter, but a global winter, I would say. Even traditional tech companies, other tech companies are making big losses and letting go of employees. But by the way, BitCup was still profitable even last year during the crypto and global winter. Right? So, uh, what is unique about BitCup Group is that the company has been around for five years, by the way, the group. We have nine companies and, and nine, company, nine operating entities under the holding. What is unique about our group is that uh, we only raised $10.7 million up to date. Right? And out of the $10.7 million, we only used $3.2 million before we became profitable and we have been running on cash since. Right? We have um, a thousand employees now. Um, uh, usually to build a billion dollar company, you have to deploy at least $400 million or raise at least $400 million. But we only raised 10.7, but use 3.2. So we have been very efficient at deploying capital. Right? And I think the, the strategy and the beliefs, um, uh, we are, we're not the conventional startups that we, we don't believe in burning money. We, we believe in sustainability and running the company on profit. Um, we don't even have VCs on the cap table right now. We only have angels, like my dad's friends on, on the cap table today. Um, but I think the strategy for us is like ESG, right? You would sacrifice short term gain. Uh, for longer term profit, right? Um, for example, initially we may burn a lot of money on, in terms of regulations, compliance, etc., and we we may move a bit slower than most of the unregulated players, right? But over the long run, we would reap more benefits. Uh, we would have higher premium because, as I said earlier, I believe that we believe that the market would self-select. 
there'll be a natural selection. And last year was a good cleanup actually, cleaning up all the bad run companies and customers are moving to us, right? To the, so the regulated your, players. What is your customer strategy there? Um, you know, we always put the customers first and to run a financial company, there are a few principles or core values or philosophies we have to stick to, right? First, you know, um, reputation, uh, trust, right? Confidence is the most important assets, right? Um, that we have to maintain in, in the long run. Integrity, trust, reputation. Um, and second, you should not cut corners. You can cut corners in other startups. I mean, if, if I start a company that sells t-shirts online, what's going to go wrong? Right? What's the maximum that can go wrong? You can cut corners and move fast and break things, but not in the financial space. You should not cut corners. It's going to be way, more, way, way more expensive in the long, long run if you cut corners today. Right? So these are the rules that we have been for, for, uh, following. Um, um, in, the, in the past, since the inception of the company. So whenever there is an issue, we always own up. We put a, I even put my face everywhere. If you guys were in Thailand uh, a few years ago, you'd see me every corner, right? To show transparency, who's the behind the company, to, to, to have a soul, to show accountability, right? Um, so that people can relate. Imagine putting 10 million Thai baht and with a random company with no backers, no one behind. How can you sleep well? at night. We don't have a hundred years of history of reputation building like traditional banks. So we have to do an unconventional way to gain trust, reputation, right? So we did many of those techniques to achieve the trust, the reputation, right? The confidence and market would self-select. They would move the money to where the well-run infrastructures are so that they can sleep well at night. And that's how we, we monetize. And by the way, the companies of the future uh, is going to be a winner-takes-all right? because of a, a platform model. And the winner-takes-all market has two different types, a global monopoly and a local monopoly. Facebook is a good example of the global monopoly model. You don't have MySpace, High Five that can coexist. Mm -hmm. Tom they're... isn't your friend anymore. <laughs> so, yeah, so because of the network effect and the economy of scale, but the e-commerce business, right? Amazon is the winner in the US, but they're not the winner in China. Alibaba is the winner in China, right? Uh, in Thailand, Lazada or Shopee, they are bleeding hard right now because one, only one can survive. With the, you know, uh, digital assets, uh, regulated digital assets platform, it's a local monopoly model. That's why our strategy, BitCup is not, is not in other countries yet. Usually the conventional wisdom or beliefs of the startup is to go global from day one and have many offices and spread their management attention thin. For us, we just fully concentrated in one country. We know that it's not a marathon, it's a sprint. We have to sprint to achieve the equilibrium network, network effect, to monopolize, to, to conquer a country at a time because we understand our business model is a local monopoly player, not a global monopoly. We cannot go global from day one. And we, we, have, we have achieved the monopoly status here, right? By acquiring enough network effect. So other players that are entering the market find it very hard to compete because of the liquidity, the customer's trust, branding, nine years of doing this, right? Uh, one country at a time. Now we have 99% market share in Thailand, right? This is crazy. And that's why we're, 
we are still profitable. So is your so just real quick because we're almost out of time. When you think about because I was it was so, I'm so happy you said the Thailand piece and I was going to joke about many we should definitely go with Kun Top for dinner because your face is all over so you'll be <laughs> famous and we can get whatever we want. But when you think about as you said, some people do the global first. You've obviously decided to focus on Thailand. 99% market share. When we were offline, Betty and I were like, this is not, this is insane. Like, so how is your thought to go to another country in Southeast Asia? Obviously, we talked about a lot of the opportunities here in the region. What What is next for BitCub? What is next for you? Is there another geography that's on your mind? Where Where's your head at? Yeah, I think crypto winter is a good opportunity to, to clean up many things. Because we were blitz scaling, Bitcap has been growing at a thousand percent every year, year on year, except the the twenty one year we did two thousand percent growth. Uh, imagine on a bigger base, right, and exponential, right, um, compounding. So I think winter is a good opportunity to clean up many things. So you're living the dream in a way. It's a dream, yeah, to to have some breathing time, right, to, so that you can clean up the culture, clean up the efficiency. Uh, or you know the inefficiency in on expenses, redundancies, the right people, and also company formation. But this next strategy, once we finish the cleanup, we have to become a regional company because we we have conquered Thailand. Right? We cannot. We have five million customers. That's on par with the Thai Stock Exchange, which has been around for fifty years. So, I think we have maxed out the the market size for for Thailand. Right. Um, so the next strategy is to become a regional company, but again, to move fast without the right infrastructure or the foundation would not be good. The cleanup would be way too expensive. So we need to clean up the company formation, the organize, organizational design structure, the proper training, and also finding the right country to enter because we don't believe in this blood, blood bloodbath. We don't want to have another bit to fight with another bit cup. Who has conquered the market already? That's not a good strategy. We would want to be the first to work with the regulators, be the first to launch the platform, be the most trust, trusted platform, plat, uh, be the most trusted platform from day one. So, and we also believe that uh, the dynamics are, are changing. The next growth, uh, tremendous growth, would be coming from Asia in the next decade, Southeast Asian region in particular. Would be entering our golden era. The, the amount of investment, the the destination that people look to invest will no longer be the U.S., China first, India first, or European first. They'll be looking at Southeast Asian region because of many reasons, right? Right, like uh, many factors, right? Like decoupling happening between East and West, China, Russia. Uh, oh, sorry, China, U.S., Russia, Ukraine, right? Um, inequality between the global North and the global South. Right. And we have um, aging population elsewhere except Asian region, rich natural resources, uh, tech users, you know, digital native customers, customer base. I think Asian is ripe for growth. We are going to be the next S curve in the next decade. So we hope to expand in this region first. 
Let's do our bets on which country he goes to next within Southeast Asia. There'll be some good opportunities, or maybe you'll take them all. There's a few. There's definitely a lot of opportunities there. Super exciting. Many? Um, yeah, I, I want to say that we're running out of time. I uh, really understand, I uh, really enjoy this uh, exchange with you, but uh, unfortunately, we book you only for one hour and we are already at the end of this hour. Sure. So thank you for joining us today. Scarlett, do you want to add something about May 2020 for next year or what we can expect as well? Well, I just think. This is a fascinating conversation. I wish we could be sitting here for two or three hours because I had many questions, including what pancake did you eat at that breakfast? <laughs> um, but anyways, I think the biggest thing is part two of this conversation or evolutions of it, I think will be so nice because a, a year from now, as you said, there's a lot of work that needs to be done, but you're going to be back with us in Bangkok in April 2024. And so I think part two of this story will come to, to life and fruition then. And so for everyone else who's excited to hear more like I am a year a year is a long time and no time at all so looking for part two of this thank okay. you we can definitely do a series with you like uh, five episodes <laughs> <laughs> focusing on one topic every time uh, I would like to thank you for co-hosting this interview with me it was great to have you here and uh, thank you very much for participating in this episode thank you very much for watching this episode of what's the fintech you can find this episode on podcast or on youtube Feel free to share it with your friends, like and make some comments. Thank you very much and I will see you soon. Bye-bye.